Welcome to Women Behind the Scenes. I'm Eloise Singer, a filmmaker and founder, and this is a podcast that shines a light on the creators behind some of the most impactful and acclaimed movies of the moment. Leslie Patterson is the co-writer and executive producer of the critically acclaimed All Quiet on the Western Front, the first film not in the English language to win a record-breaking seven awards at the BAFTAs. Leslie, who was born in Scotland, began competing in triathlons when she was 14 years old and went on to become a five-time world champion. But after discovering the novel of All Quiet in a bookstore in Los Angeles, she began a 16-year journey to bring the film to fruition. I sat down with Leslie just after her Oscar nomination was announced to talk about how she persevered for all those years to make this film happen. So, all quite on the Western Front, incredible film, so unbelievably powerful and so aptly getting a huge amount of critical acclaim. How does it feel to be nominated for an Oscar? It's incredible. I mean, it truly is beyond my wildest dreams. I guess I always felt like it could be if we found the right team to do it. But I just feel, I feel so grateful. So, so lucky as well to have been teamed up with Edward and Malta and, you know, all of the amazing crew that came together. I mean, wow. (laughs) It feels almost like a dream in a way. One of those things that's sort of been such a journey for you. Right. And to get to this moment... It's it's extraordinary. Yeah, it's so surreal. And, you know, we optioned the rights to the novel 16 years ago. And I don't know if it's just that sort of fire in my belly, that feeling like it will always work out. But I just inherently believe that it would be. And that's an artifact of, you know, it's such an amazing novel. It's so poetic. It's such a potent story. It's incredibly timely, even back then, even more so now. And I believe that the different storylines that we were bringing in and the sort of approach that we had to the novel was quite unique. And in the right hands, it could be something special. So, and I guess that's what drove me for so many years to keep on going. It's one of those things that everything sort of happens for a reason and it feels like now is the time for this story to really sing and especially in the world today and what's happening and the themes in it are really resonant and important. Yep. When you first read the novel and decided to option it, what was it about the story that gave you that drive? I think for me it was the the thematic essence of the betrayal of a youthful generation. Because, you know, I'm still relatively young. Uh, I have young nieces and nephews. So that sense of the upper brass dictating how we should live our lives. I'm quite a sort of underdog by nature coming from Scotland. So in that regard, I like to fight against the way things are done. And what I found so beautiful was that it was told from the other side. And it just cemented that sense that regardless of which country, whether you're the losers, the winners, all these young men were betrayed. And that's what made it even more potent by, you know, telling it from the other side. And it feels like there isn't another story out there that does depict the war from the other side. No, 
There really isn't. I mean, look at all of the war films that are out there. They have that sense of heroicism and adventure and, you know, winning out in the end. And there isn't anything of this nature. And that's really what Edward brought to the table, specifically as a German. He brought that sense of shame and just that heaviness of being German into both the script and the film. And so tell me about that story of how you managed to option it to begin with and then all the way through to when Edward came on. Yeah, so my partner at the time, he was my writing and producing partner at the time, Ian Strokow. We saw the novel in a Barnes & Noble, a bookstore across in Los Angeles where we were living, and they had a special offer on. And we thought, gosh, you know, we read this in school, but, you know, we kind of picked it up, read it again. And we both said, wow, this book has not been adapted for a long time. I wonder who has the rights. And we're quite, both of us are quite maverick people. And we thought, well, heck, let's just try and find out. So we reached out to the estate and lo and behold, the rights were available and we could not believe it. I think Universal had had the rights and they had just lapsed. So we put together our little case as sort of unknown writers, you know, hey, please pick us. And we put forward, this is our idea. This is how we want to do it. And they said, yes, which was incredible. And I think, you know, a lot of that has to do with the fact that 16 years ago, World War One was not really a popular war to cover in cinematic terms, because certainly back then it was very American centric in terms of the content that we were all consuming. And therefore, it was very World War Two dominated, because that's the war that Americans played a big role in. Not only that, you know, from a story perspective, there's very obvious goodies and baddies. You have your Nazis and you have the Allies. It, it makes sense to storytelling. World War One is not like that. And furthermore, now that streamers really have dominated currently, we're just more aware of other cultural stories. So I think that's why it was available at the time. And certainly, as we find out, once we had adapted the novel, it took us probably about 18 months and loads of drafts to get it right. We soon realized, you know, it was going to be a hard slog because people were really scared to remake a classic. It had already won Best Picture, of course, uh, with Lewis Milestone's film. And certainly any German directors that we approached were, oh, they didn't want to do it. And then, of course, you you then go through the British or American and then it's sort of an English-speaking film with German accents and it means something different and, and it doesn't have that texture. So... We went through many different sort of iterations, different producers on board, different actors. And we were trying to learn the business as well, not really understanding it. You know, how do you put a film like this together? Well, there's many different ways, but generally you're going to, you know, do you get a big name actor on board? Do you get a big name director? How do you get the finance? All of these things. And, you know, we kind of started off trying to get an actor and that's when we met with Daniel Radcliffe, you know, and of course, creatively, now knowing what we know, that was completely the wrong choice. But at the time, again, we were learning as producers, how do you package a film and what does it mean? So we got the opportunity to meet him, which was wonderful because he's an incredible actor and a wonderful person. And he came on board the project for a while, but we soon realized we couldn't get it off the ground with just him. And it became very obvious that you really need a director that has a, a clear vision to get it off the ground. And so that became the next slog. I mean, we went through a few different directors and that's a hard one to get right. You know, there's only so many directors that can get things funded and that have a strong enough vision for this type of project. And it really is timing. You know, we just had to go through all that crap to find the gem that is Edward. <laughs> 
I honestly, I do believe everything happens for a reason. Yep. And it's kind of, it's a journey and you learn all of these lessons along the journey and then when it all fits, it just fits. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. When you came to the process of co-writing and adapting the story into a screenplay, mm-hmm. how was that? How did you break that up? How did you decide what you were going to include, what you weren't going to include? Yep. It must have been really challenging to really sort challenging. of your darlings. Oh my gosh. So we did two things first. One was we bought a ton of novels and we ripped them all up into the different scenes and we kind of pinned them all over the house and we were really sort of digging into what would we want to keep, what would we have to sacrifice. But I think the biggest thing about the novel was the fact that it is kind of like excerpts of a diary. There's no dramatic through line to really carry the film in a cinematic sense. And certainly for modern audiences, it needs something to grab onto. And so we realised that pretty quickly and it was quite tough to know how to deal with that. Like initially, I think because we did a lot of research, I probably spent a year researching just all about the political climate of the time in Germany, what was going on, trench war diaries of the German side, then obviously all the Allies side too, to kind of see where it sat within the canon of work. And I think at one point we had a whole storyline which followed the woman back home just because there was a lot of strife. They lacked a lot of food. There was a lot of starvation. And I find that piece really fascinating. We wondered, you know, could that be some kind of dramatic through line? But then when we came across the armistice being signed and just what that meant in terms of the historical context of what then happened in World War II, we were like, wow, this is fascinating. Because I didn't really know about it. You know, being coming from the UK and being an ally, you're never really taught that you know, you just sort of see Germany as the enemy for whatever reason. And so once we started to dig into the reparations that needed to be paid back and how Germany were squeezed and what that set up in terms of the the climate and the country and then the rise of Hitler as the consequence, we were like, wow, that that's really potent and could be a nice juxtaposition for the front and Paul, our main character. And then, of course, we find out about the last six hours of the war. And we thought, gosh, I mean, to have some kind of ticking clock would just give it so much tension. So we really wanted to include that too. So sort of melding all of those things together, it's still staying true to the themes of the book. We then created some storylines around that. And what was fascinating when Edward came on board was just... You know, he went back to the book and it's such a proudful novel for them. I mean, it is the national novel of Germany. And, you know, he wanted to put more scenes from the book back in. He really wanted to hone in on this is not a story of heroism. And so he scaled back on some of the the missions that we had had Paul to do and really sort of focused on Kat and Paul and their relationship. So it was really fascinating to see some of those elements come back in and, and what that meant. And then also, you know, as a writer, to see the final product and what you don't need to see because it's covered It's covered in the sound, it's covered in the looks and the reactions, it's covered in the edit, all of those things, if it's done well. So, yeah, it was quite the process. Sounds like quite the process. And I hear you in terms of the sort of incidental storytelling, for example, the scenes of the politicians speaking and the general speaking and how clean those are and composed they are and the contrast Mm -hmm. between that and seeing these men on the front line and how gritty and real it is Mm -hmm. and it feels like such a stark comparison that 
felt very much like a creative decision to show yep. these sort of two polar different worlds. Big time. And I remember writing the scene of the croissants, you know, or them eating food in stark contrast to the soldiers, you know, in the shell holes in the mud, starving. But as I analyse, as I'm growing as a filmmaker, a producer, and then, you know, who knows, maybe a director down the line, I, I don't know. But, you know, you start to see how those shots are composed, like the the railway carriages are very square, they're very exacting, just like the characters, as you say, very clean. The motions, the way that they track are very smooth in comparison to the kind of chaos of the trenches, which I find fascinating. But that's your dream is, is sort of a writer and producer that you have all of these creative entities that come together to cr- just they, they layer on and they layer on. And that's where the magic happens. I read that one of the scenes that you included was the scene of the women who were changing the Germans' uniforms. Right. It would be great to hear a bit more about that and what inspired you to write that scene. So, you know, I think it's pretty classic that any film is going to start off with some kind of hook where you want to take the audience in and and shock them. And so trench warfare is so intense. It made sense for us to start off with some kind of battle. But then we also wanted to have Paul be this young school kid and caught up in the patriotic fervor. So we're like, gosh, how how do we get from the no man's land back to the home front and do it in an eloquent way that says something thematically so the audience understands what they're going to be watching and that it can be impactful. And so I was out for a run and a lot of my ideas come to me when I'm out running because I think I was out in the hills in Scotland and I'd been watching Schindler's List the night before and one of my most favourite parts of Schindler's List is the girl with the red coat Mm -hmm. and how you see that kind of just move throughout the story and then pile up uh, with the bodies and just the sort of the impact that had on me emotionally. And I thought, gosh, you know, thematically to have the uniform go back you know, because he did actually do this. I thought it really it really sets up the film that the uniform is worth more than the man, which is everything about what All Quiet encapsulates. So that's how we came up with it. And we just kind of built on that. And then I thought, gosh, how foreboding to have Paul be the one to get that uniform and then see that it has another guy's name tag on it, you know. And the way that Edward shot that and the music and, oh my gosh. It's extraordinary. And for you, this the whole journey from optioning to writing to then getting it made has been such a long process. <laughs> yeah. How did you navigate that? What was the lowest moment? So I think, you know, every year we would have to try and come up with money to pay for the options. And so that was challenging. You know, my husband, who is now my writing partner and producing partner, he's an incredible writer and and helped a lot on the script, in fact he was an academic at the time. So you've got an academic salary, you've got a professional triathlete salary, which isn't very much. And we were kind of investing all our money. So it was, where do we find that every year? And it was just so stressful. Not only that, how do we convince them that this is still moving forward? As the years roll on, they're like, really? You know, can you guys really do this? We're like, no, honestly, we can so there was many a conversation, many a beg, borrow and steal. And one of the years we'd, we'd run out of money and I was racing for money. And that would be our lump sum to try and help pay for it. And the day before the race, I broke my shoulder and I was in the perfect position to win the race, which would have given us enough money to, to cover the option. And so, you know, we had a stark chat, my husband and I, who's actually in his previous life as a sports psychologist, 
And I got on the phone to my physio and I said, am I going to damage it anymore? You know, and we figured out how to do it. And I swam with one arm and I biked. I came out 12 minutes down. I biked up to second place, I think, and then ran into the wind. So it was like one of those just crazy, crazy stories. And we, we got enough money to, to keep it going. So... <laughs> bonkers yeah honestly bonkers I'm a huge swimmer I love yeah I love swimming an hour and a half swim for me in a lake is my idea of absolute heaven but to think about doing that with a damaged shoulder I cannot cannot imagine how you did it do you do a lot of drills when you're swimming yeah yeah so you know you can it's it's amazing I mean I've spent you know, I'm now 42. I've been swimming pretty competitively since I was like 12. So you do a lot of one arm drills. I was actually always quite good because I've got a strong leg kick. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, you know what? Like I can get through this. And I guess that's been the mantra of my life. You take it step at a time and you say, well, I might as well try and we'll see what happens. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? I don't finish. Well, big deal. I pull out. Nothing, nothing gained, nothing lost. So yeah, we just kind of took it step at a time. But I'm not going to lie. I was exhausted when I got out of the water. <laughs> It must have been insane, yeah. honestly, honestly, honestly. But I completely agree with that mantra. And the idea of just, I don't really believe in failure. I just believe in the notion right. that you can learn from right. what didn't happen. Exactly. And it's like learning that takes you forward. Rather right. than perceiving something to be a failure. It's not, it's just an opportunity it, to learn. Exactly. And I think that the people that are truly successful have that mindset. And it's something that you're both born with and then something that you cultivate. And the more experiences that you have where you've overcome that kind of adversity and come out the other side, it actually, we know now because of neuroplasticity in the brain, that it changes the wiring in your brain so that you can cope with more adversity moving forward. And it was my husband, of of course, that explained this to me. So I thought, gosh, it's, it's almost like working your brain out like a muscle. You know, it's like doing weight reps. Okay, so when I have a bad day, I'm doing my weight reps with my brain and it's making me stronger for the next time I deal with crap. Yeah, so I think that that's kind of the mindset that we had across those 16 years as well. And just always staying true to the passion and why you want to tell it and why it's important. And when everyone's telling you no, 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 and just give it up, you know, just staying true to your own path and journey. Yeah, and that fundamental belief that there is a reason that this needs to be told and this needs to be made. Right. And that's kind of what carries you through. Right. And I think that any sort of good filmmaker, storyteller, that's why they're good. Because the reason, the passion, the deep drive to tell that story is so innate that it doesn't make sense to give it up, you know. And a lot of people say, oh, why don't you just give up? There's not an option. That's not an option. Giving up is never an option. And so how did it come about that Edward came on board? How did that process even Right. Well, we were with another producer at the time that we had a a shopping agreement with and we were kind of going down another path of maybe doing it as a series and what have you. And he had had some, I think, through his agency and a lawyer and, you know, it's always kind of somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. Malta had found out that we had the option and we had a script. And so then Edward read the script, as did Malta, and they reached out just to say, we'd love to chat to you guys and how's about it. And at the time, we had another director on board and we're going down a different path. But there was something inside of me. As soon as I watched Edward's previous films, and I was a huge fan of 1983. And yeah, he's just such an incredible talent. And I spoke to some people in the industry and they said, wow, he's incredible. And I thought, we've got to do this. He's German. It's a German novel. He's a talent. Malta's one of the best producers in the business, especially in Germany. 
we've got to do this. So we really fought to make that happen. And yeah, once it was kind of those guys were on board, it was greenlit almost instantly by Netflix. It was bananas. Where were you when you had the Netflix were on board? Yeah, so it was right around Berlin 2020, right before COVID hit. And we were presenting it at Berlin Film Market. And we had gone across to see Edward speak about the script, meet Malta as well. And literally Malta was getting phone calls. As soon as they had made the announcement about the whole thing, he was like fielding, okay, you know, Netflix and Paramount and this and that. And by the reaction, we're like, okay, we're on. So that was incredibly exciting. And then there was a big discussion about, should we do Netflix? Should we do it independently? Because I think a theatrical release was very important to all of us and especially Edward, because, I, you know, he believed this was a passion piece for him and that it could do something and be an awards contender even then. I think he just knew. And, and so Netflix weren't as big then before COVID. But then COVID hit and we're like, thank goodness we went with Netflix because the protocols that they had, the resources that they had to get it done, how they treat their creative teams, who gets behind it. I mean, they've been incredible. And so did you shoot this during COVID? Yes. So it was at the height of COVID. It was in Czech Republic. You know, the set was just completely locked down. It was very, very intense very streamlined, a very hard shoot, minimal people on board. Yeah, so it was it was it was a hard experience for everyone involved, but at the same time I think that added to the trauma <laughs> that comes across on screen, which, you know, it's what you say, you use that adversity to fuel everything else that you're doing. Totally. It feels so honest and raw. And that's what comes across so clearly on screen is this idea of how brutal the world was that they were living in and having it in German and making it feel like that was the world and the time and the place. It's incredibly powerful. When we started, there's no way you could have done a German film for this kind of budget. There just wasn't the distribution outlet and there wasn't the interest in foreign film to raise that kind of finance. But with streamers and the whole world changing with Parasite winning, Best Pictures, well, Best Foreign, 1917 and Sam Mendes, all of a sudden the zeitgeist changed. So for us, it just lends this authenticity and this beauty. And I've had a lot of people just chat to me and say, it almost doesn't even matter what these men say in a way. I mean, of course, they're reading it, but I think because the way that Edward shot it is so immersive and so potent, you get wrapped up in these journeys and you can feel what they're saying without almost no, knowing what they're saying. And I think the beauty of that, there's some gorgeous scenes specifically between Kat and Paul. There's laughter, there's emotional sharing. And rarely do we hear the German language in that context. We're so used to hearing it in that World War II Nazi, you know. And here we have just regular guys having a chat and a laugh. And one of, one of my most favorite moments, and I cry every time I watch it, is when Albert is watching, he's watching the girls, the farming girls walk along and he watches his comrade go off and you see his reaction of, I've not got the courage to go and do that myself and I probably will never be with a woman. And, you know, just some of those moments that just humanize these men that, again, we're not used to experiencing. Yeah. And remind us of how little life they live. Right. 
And it feels like, again, in what's happening today and how resonant that is. Right. It's a really important message. And I think as well, like we're so polarised in our thinking and unfortunately we live in our silos. It can become very ethnocentric. So to put yourself in other people's shoes, whether they are the enemy or not, to have compassion and empathy and understanding and to look from the other side does a lot to fuel how we should behave in the future. So and that's what this film does. It does. And in such an amazing, powerful way as well. How was it the first time watching the edit and seeing your words yeah. come to life on screen? It was totally bananas. And so it was Christmas time, 2021. And I sat down, Netflix had sent sort of, hey, you can watch it for 24 hours type deal. And I sat down with my husband and his parents who were very close to us throughout the whole process and his sister. Nobody said a word. And I kid you not, I'm, I was so tense. My palms were sweating. I couldn't move the whole time. I was so nervous and anxious and I hope I'm going to like it. But then just drawn in by, you know, how intense it is. And oh God. And then I cried, especially at the, the scene in the shell hole with the Frenchman when he kills him. And, you know, I, I was exhausted. I was exhausted by the end. You know, and I know what's coming. I was exhausted. So, yeah, and then I immediately called Edward and I think he was just, as always, very gracious, but he just really wanted us to like it, you know, and so he was, and what about this and what about that? And, you know, I was kind of like a giddy, giddy little child, so. I cried in that scene as well. How can you not? God, and the way that it's acted and uh, interestingly, you know, Felix is obviously incredible and this is his first film, on-screen performance, and he's such a, a lovely guy and how he managed the emotional escalations of different scenes. He had a rubric that he kind of typed out. So he would have like an emotional value for every scene so that he could really track it because, of course, you're shooting out of sequence. And during that scene specifically, I think they had a, a, a camera issue about halfway through the scene. And, you know, it doesn't happen often. These guys are, are professionals, they're incredible, but it happened in this scene, which was most unfortunate. And I think Felix just kind of lost it because it was such an intense scene. Mm. Um, but what probably my most favourite thing about that scene is the way that it's edited and how, how they draw it out to the point where you're so uncomfortable and you think, oh, can this just be over already? But not in a boredom way, just because it feels so awful. And, you know, that's what Edward tried to do was mirror how these soldiers were feeling and try and make the audience feel the same way. And that that is really special. And that's what resonates so much is this idea that you, you're so uncomfortable, you don't want to be in that situation, but that's reflecting what they're feeling as well, is right. this idea of not wanting to be there, not wanting to be in that situation, but having to be forced into this life that right. they didn't want to live effectively. Yeah. And then it's just, it feels like one hit after the next for Paul, you know. And interestingly, after we premiered at TIFF, nobody clapped. There was no standing ovation, nothing. And we thought, oh my God, this, oh God, people don't like it. But I think they were just so, yeah, they were so impacted by it that they couldn't really, I mean, how, it's like a Holocaust movie. Are you really going to stand up and clap? So, yeah, but that was, you know, you know, your first film, you're sitting there going, oh my God, you know. Must have been very disconcerting. Just yep. looking around being like, do people like it? What, how oh, totally. This? Yeah. And you're just, because obviously we like it, but it, it's a different kind of film. And you hope people see what you see in it. 
but you just have to have confidence. And we did. And every step of the way, it's just been like, wow, we, we had a movie made. Wow, we're getting to go to a premiere. Wow, wow. You know, it, just being grateful for every little moment, regardless of the outcome, has is, is kept a, our, our feet in the ground, I think. It's nice taking those moments of enjoying the sunshine. Right. the sunshines. You know, I wasn't good at doing that in my athletic career. You know, I won five world titles and I'd say the first two, it was like, okay, right, I've just got to keep going. I've got to prove myself. I've got to, the expectations are so high. Everyone's going to expect me to win. And I was at the point in my career where I was beating a lot of pro men as well. And it, it was almost a failure if I, I didn't beat men. I'm like, are you kidding me? Come on. And then I was hit with a, a really bad illness. I suffered from chronic Lyme disease and lots of injuries as a consequence. And, and so coming back to the sport and just being able to do it, I was fueled with a lot of gratitude. And I thought, you know what, I'm not going to do that again. And so it's the same with film. And we've had a couple of people say to my husband and I, oh gosh, you know, does it make you nervous about what's to come? Or can you, can you do it again? Or you know, and I thought, I think, no, I, I don't care about that. I'm so great. I mean, I'm so grateful. I just want to go out and tell great stories. And if you focus on the craft, if you focus on the mastery of that, whether that's sport, whether that's screenwriting, whether that's producing, whether that's directing, whatever it is, then the outcome comes. Don't focus on the outcome. Do you feel that your definition of success has changed? Oh, yeah. Success is about surrounding yourself by great people and having wonderful experiences. That for me is success because it doesn't mean anything if you don't have a cracking good laugh doing it. And so now we're focused on the right people that we want to work with, not necessarily the project. Yeah. So that's that's a different ball of wax because I think you find the people, you find the group, you find the team and then you say, what do we want to do together? OK, that makes sense. And we're getting that. You know, people always think, oh, Los Angeles, it's not you know, people are superficial or this and that, but you find your group, you know, you really do. We have amazing friends there that are so dynamic and interesting and eclectic. And we're gradually creating this team of people that are excited and enthusiastic. And because it's been such a struggle to get this film off the ground, I'm really emotional about helping others trying to do the same and making sure that I mentor others when I haven't been or help others when I haven't been. Because when you're getting up to the top, it can be one phone call that could change someone's life. And, you know, and I often think that, why would that person not make that phone call for me? Come on. If you had one lesson that you learned from the whole process of making this film that you would impart on someone else, what would it be? To keep on going until the timing is right. Never give up because it will come around in the end. And so now we have a ton of other projects on the go. It's like you get the no and you don't feel so bad because you're like, oh, it wasn't meant to be. Kind of like what you were saying earlier. There's a path that we haven't quite found yet, but we'll find it. It's a cargo net. It's not a ladder. So don't don't tell me to give up because I ain't doing it. And what are you working on now? Yeah, so my husband and I have our own production company and we have a, a bunch of different projects going on. So, for instance, we have a, a great uh, film set in the Travellers community in Ireland. That's a super gritty film, a little bit like The Fighter or Warrior, about this young girl who accidentally kills a young boy from a feuding family and is sent away to London sort of for safety reasons, but her family never come and get her. And so eventually she ends up going back into the community. They find out who she really is and then her father fights on her behalf. So it's like a beautiful father-daughter story, but in a world that we haven't really seen before. Because the traveller, gypsy-type community is such an interesting culture. And that's, I think, what we're drawn to is different worlds. We have another true story set in Ghana in 1900, based on a very famous queen mother called Yai Santua. 
who ended up raising an army of 5,000 warriors to fight off the British. And it's a fascinating story that we're like, why has a film never been made about her? But again, the world is so interesting. We have another one set in Scotland, so hopefully we'll come home to, to film that. That's like a psychological thriller. And then we've got a military, a military project as well, because why wouldn't you after doing All Quiet? I think ultimately what we're, we're deeply interested in, my husband being a psychologist and me being an endurance athlete, is suffering. Characters that go through suffering and finding purpose and meaning through that suffering. That's probably where our, our lane is. Because I think regardless of the decade that we're in, the suffering has a different quality. And I think that, you know, we're all dealing with a lot post-COVID. We're all dealing a lot with existential crisis. We're all finding ways to cope. And there's so many amazing stories from history that really reflect where we're at now. And that's the big thing is to find that thematic essence that can relate to nowadays. And I think a lot of content now almost, they're so plot heavy, they lose a sense of what is it all about? Why should I tell this story? Why, why should it have an impact? And those are the types of stories we want to tell, like this one, you know? And also it's one of those that it keeps you driven as well if you know right. the reason that you believe that this story has to be told right as you say yeah you're not going to give up are you and it's like I, I don't know about you but people always say you know what was the film that sort of made you want to be in film and there's many different films I mean one of my favorites is Saving Private Ryan but I think for me like when I was younger and watching E.T. because it gave that sense of kind of I wanted to be special I wanted to cope with a divorce of my parents as well. I wanted to believe in something bigger in the world that could make change. There's like a bigger feeling about that film. Like there's more right here than just us. So that feeling, I wanted to recreate that in storytelling and have that impact on other people to change their lives, whether it's about a social justice cause or whether it's about, you know, an athlete overcoming odds, whatever that's about, you know to do what I have had done to me so many times that literally has kept me going. That's such a beautiful way of putting it. And I resonate with that completely. It's exactly the same reason why I'm in film as well. It's this idea of having watched films that have moved me in different ways or impacted me in such visceral experiences, whether it's seeing someone who's suffered hugely or seeing someone overcome loss. Mm -hmm. And it's those sort of moments where filmmakers are able to effectively change your emotion right and allow you to either empathize or understand or learn mm -hmm. about a different society or culture and self-reflect right look at yeah. look at your own self and uh, one of my favorite films of last year was a lost daughter because I'm now 42 and you know I don't have children and that's been a big sort of angst in my life should I should I not and so we've never really seen that side of motherhood be told. And I was, I was so gorgeously told. It just really hit home for me. And I thought, those are the types of films. You know, whatever that person is going through at any given time, it can have that impact. It's just, and look at how we absorb content now. You know, I mean, a lot all the time. That's how we sort of understand the world and who we are. So we can have that kind of impact and look at what Netflix have done with All Quiet and how many eyeballs have seen this. We never would have thought that, you know, 16 years ago that, that literally millions and millions of people that have seen it and not just older people that you might think traditionally would be the bracket that would watch this. I've had loads of teenagers reach out, you know, or rather their parents reach out and say, my son told me to watch this. 
That's cool. That's very cool. And it's the power of storytelling as well. Right. The impact that it has on society, how we can make a difference. That's the beauty of it. It is. And I think that, you know, people are super critical of the film business. You know, they sort of see it as, oh, the comic books, the this, the that. But at every level, whether it is a comic book film or, you know, an animation Generally, there's a lot of discussions, a lot of development into how can we have a deeper foundation to this? And you can see, I mean, films like All Quiet Now hitting a wider audience. People want content that makes a difference, that changes them, changes their perspective. I totally agree. I totally, totally agree. Out of interest, if there's one thing that you could change about the industry, having gone through the journey that you've been through, what would it be? Ooh... I think it's the intersection between the business and creative is a real challenge because you have a lot of executives that aren't necessarily trained in story or they're not, they've not come from writing. And so their perspective is very much generic or they're trying to make their own selves applicable to their job or their moment and without really sort of understanding the creative essence maybe of a story. So I would say what I'd change about the industry is is having every executive or business person, financier, having to go through screenwriting classes, you know, to truly understand story. And then the biggest challenge is when you're trying to package a film and, you know, you're told you need this name or that name. And, you know, and then you're like, hang on a minute, I've just seen a load of films come out at that budget that don't have any names. So how did they get theirs off the ground? So it's it's a weird sort of oxymoronic business that doesn't make sense. Maybe understanding how to create your own path, uh, that's, that's the main thing, because there is a path, you just got to find your own one. That's exactly it. It's one of those that it feels like when you first step into the industry, there's sort of a notion that there's this hidden secret door yes. that you have to get to. And right. once the door's open then there's a really clear path on how you get your film made and how it all goes. When actually that's not the case at all and everyone's journey is so different. Right. And the way that people make their films and they get picked up and packaged is so different. It's bananas. And, you you know, you even talk to top producers or top directors that, you know, have passion projects for years and years and years and you're thinking, how did they not get it funded? So it's a really difficult one between, you know, the risk piece of film and then the business side and the creative side. And I think we're struggling. We're still in the teething world at the moment. So it's just trying to find that path, I guess. Yeah. Navigate through all of the hurdles and obstacles that are thrown at you ultimately. And as you say, just never give up. Yep. Never give up. All of that tenacity. Leslie Paston, you've been an absolute dream. Thank you so much for chatting with me. It's a pleasure and let's exchange information. I'm sure there's a project we can do together. 100% that'd be awesome. For those who want to follow your journey online, where's the best place to look? Yeah, probably Instagram. Leslie does try, T-R-I. So L-E-S-L-E-Y does try. You know, Facebook, Twitter, same sort of handles. I'll try and be better about that. (laughs) Amazing. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. So listen, if you enjoyed this episode and you fancy subscribing, then that would be fantastic. But more importantly, if there's someone out there who you think might enjoy learning about these incredible filmmakers, please do send this series their way. Women Behind the Scenes was hosted by me, Eloise Singer. 
The executive producers are myself and Kathy Anderson. The producer is Ben Weaver-Hinks. Production manager is Hannah Alexander. Post-production was done by Matt McGuinness. Editing, mixing and mastering was by Tom Fred Bradshaw at iGame Audio. Music was from premiumbeat.com and our production assistant is Lucy Davidson. Lucy Davidson.